forever. Dog. And it's my old heart. Wait and measure inside, and it's an old scar. Wait until the beat comes out. I'm watching. Wait until the beat comes out. Who's a heretic now? Am I making sense? How can you make it stick? Wait until the beat comes out. Hi, welcome back to the comic book commentary. This is for Hexwives issue two. It's out today, November 28th. <laughs> that was a special, a special message for Brett at Forever Dog, <laughs> in case I forget to tell him when to put this out. Um, so these comic book commentaries, if you heard the last one, you know this already, but I'm going to repeat it for any new listeners because that last one was long. This one will not be as long. Um, I love to hear how the sausage is made. I think if you are listening to the Writer's Panel podcast, you also do. Um, so these commentaries are like DVD commentaries. We're just going through the comic. We're talking about, um, you know, what went into it, how it was made, what the process was like, all that fun stuff. Um, I've hit up a bunch of other comic creators, and people seem into this idea. Um, and maybe it's because we just like talking about the stuff we make. And hopefully people want to hear it, but uh, we're going to keep doing this um, as long as we can find creators who want to do it. Um, I already have people lined up for early next year. The good news for you, listener, is I'm going to move this to its own feed at some point, uh, probably in January. And so you won't be getting these during in the writer, regular writer's panel feed. Uh, you can go subscribe on that new feed, and I'll be sure to announce when that is happening um, meantime, if there are comics writers and artists who you want to hear about their page-by-page process, hit me up on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. Tell me who you really like. Um, I want to know what people are reading now, too. Like, I read a lot of comics every week. Um, so I have, you know, the books and, and the writers that I really love and who I follow. Um, but I'd love to know who you all want to hear from. Um, so find me on Twitter, at uh, Ben Blacker, and let me know that. Um, once again, this is for Hexwives number two. It is out today, November 28th, 2018. Uh, issue three will not be out until January 2nd uh, because of the holidays and stuff. We pushed it a little bit. So issue three is January 2nd, and then issue four is January 30th. So you're going to get two issues in January. It's a long month. Um, and we'll put out uh, commentaries for those as well, um, in addition to commentaries from other uh, comics creators. Uh, I think it should be a lot of fun. Okay. Issue two. This is a weird issue. Um, so I had this plan about what this book was going to be. Like I knew that these witches were trapped in suburbia, but they couldn't use their powers, right? They, they just, it sort of had to be a creeping horror that you see in like Get Out or Rosemary's Baby or the Stepford Wives, but that doesn't lead to a lot of incident. It's not very action-heavy. So I had a lot of conversations with my editors, Molly Mayen and Maggie Howell, about how we could make these issues interesting and compelling and creepy and weird while also being sort of low on incident. Um, and I think what that comes down to is a couple things. One is it comes down to the relationships, right? In issue one, we established who this coven was, and we also tore them apart from each other. 
So if this is, if Hexwives is at heart a love story, issue two should start to play into that. And like, if we want to keep Izzy and Nadia apart or start to get them back together, that has to matter to one or both of them. Um, and so in small ways, that's where we're going to start to plant that stuff again. Um, this is also, this issue really became about what are the men, what are the architects actually doing day to day to try to control these witches, right? They're not killing them. This is a choice they've made. They're going to try to control them instead. They saw that in the first issue. So what does the day-to-day of that look like? And this was the thing that really interested me five years ago when I first thought of this book. Um, You know, it's about the insidious ways that are built into the patriarchy in which men try to control women. Um, And it comes, you know, a lot of the stuff in here comes from conversations with my wife and with my women friends and, and relatives and stuff to get the reality of that. Um, and Molly and Maggie were both really instrumental, especially in this issue, in issue two, in coming up with those ideas and being honest and like telling me like, I had an employer who did this or I had an ex-boyfriend who did this. Um, and those things worked their way into this issue in various different ways. Um, so, you know, as much as I want to take ownership of this book, as proud of I, as I am of it, what really makes me proud of it is what a collaborative effort it is. Um, you know, starting in the storytelling with the editors and then with Mirkan Dolfo, who draws it, and Marissa Louise, who colors it. Um, the thing that Molly pointed out in that first issue is you're doing Jane Eyre. That's what this this issue is. When you get to the end of this first issue, and we and again, like a commentary track, I assume you've already read the issue, and now you're going to go back and experience it with me. So I'm going to talk about things that happen throughout the issue, even before we get to them. Um, so when you get to that last page, and we reveal that there is essentially a mad woman in an attic, right? It's the trope that uh, was introduced in Jane Eyre. Um, for us, it's a a disgusting old witch in a closet. Um, But when we get to that, we, you know, that reveal is reminiscent of Jane Eyre. And so I went back to Jane Eyre, which when I was a high school teacher is a book that I taught a couple of times. It's a book I absolutely love. Um, I went through, I watched some of the adaptations. Um, All of them are really good. There isn't a bad adaptation. Some are a little more boring than others. Um, I also read the script I read the script for uh, Carrie Fukunaga's version, which was written by Moira Buffini, um, which is a really great script. And if you are a screenwriter, it's one I recommend. It really does an amazing job capturing the tone of the book, which is so dark and so weird. Um, it comes across in the script, which is which is a, a hard feat. It's a very impressive feat. And I literally pulled stuff out of both the novel and that script, um, which I think was sort of uh, versions of stuff that was from the novel, um, and put it in this issue of the comic. Uh, And I'll talk about that as I hit that stuff. Um, But anyway, uh, I talked last issue about how issue, uh, about how that issue, issue one began underwater. I wanted to do something that was the opposite here, and I wanted to continue the water motif uh, so we get um, we get Izzy flying through the air, about to splash into this pool. Um, the floating thing in on this first page 
it looks like a dragon. In my script, it was a seahorse because it was supposed to be a reference to when uh, Jane meets Mr. Rochester. He's riding his horse and the horse rears up and she gets scared. Um, so that's what we were trying to do here. It looks a little more like a sea dragon than a seahorse. Um, but maybe they don't have seahorses in Italy. Mirka, let me know. Um, but again, you know, we get this underwater uh, motif. We have Izzy. And again, I, I, I like this third panel where she's very much alone. She looks kind of content in that fourth panel. And then I wanted an almost creature from the Black Lagoon feeling of an arm reaching out to her that something dangerous is coming for her underwater. But then you turn the page and you get this two-page spread and it's her husband and she's having a great time and they're laughing and he's yelling, I gotcha, which is a very loaded thing for him to to yell because obviously it has multiple meanings. He literally has her as a captive. She doesn't know it. Um, it seems all very innocuous and innocent, but in fact, um, it's very dangerous for Izzy. Um, I wanted to just sort of give a glimpse of their relationship here. How does Izzy see him? Does she have any, like, because I knew the questions would be, does she remember who she is? Does she remember anything? Um, and here we're establishing that she doesn't. She does call him a devil. Um, we do, you know, I think part of the fun of this stuff is we get to play a lot with subtext and we get to play with um, dramatic irony, right? The reader knows that, she is being held captive. Izzy doesn't know it, but when she says something like, you're a devil, or he says something like, you love me, uh, he doesn't say, I love you. He says, you love me. Um, and there's a, a later line where he sa she says, I'm lucky to have you, and he says something like, you're lucky to be had. You know, that's very careful language um, that I put in his mouth. Um, one of the ways that was pointed out um, that men try to control women uh, and possibly even without knowing they're doing so um, is to say to do what basically I do on this page is she says, what do you want to eat? And he says, anything you throw together will be fine. And then, of course, when that actually happens, he doesn't like what she's done. Um, so it's that sort of fickle, emotional response to things. Um, turn the page to page four. We get another nine panel grid. It was always the idea that every issue in these first six issues would employ this nine panel grid to sort of reset where we are as well as give new information. And the new information we get here is uh, this scratching, right? We, Izzy hears a scratching coming from the walls. We don't know what that is, and that will pay off later in the issue. Um, again, as usual, Mirka has just unbelievably beautiful costume design for Izzy. It has this like amazing sort of 60s, late 60s, like Mary Tyler Moore <laughs> vibe, which I absolutely love. Um, and then what Marissa has done with the lighting and the color in this on this page just knocks me out. Um, it always, when I conceived of it, I thought that the nine panel grid would be pretty much the same every time. And that Mirka changed the angle on it changes the story a little bit. And I think for the better, you know, we see that time is passing. We get that maybe something a little more unusual is happening. Um, after that, you know, it's it's just about gaslighting. You know, that's what really what this whole issue is about. Um, I'm looking at page four now um, with Aaron both being affectionate and also withholding affection and being critical, right? 
he, the last time we saw him, he said, I'm sure whatever you do is fine. This time he says, you certainly took your time in there. Uh, and he's, he's a little huffy. He's like, I need to dry my hair as well. Um, he's not the always supportive husband. He's, he's, I think he's having trouble settling into this role that he's created for himself. Um, and then he flips completely after snapping at her. I need to dry my hair. He says, you're astoundingly gorgeous. And that's the least interesting thing about you. Um, I needed to land some dialogue there that would make him irresistible to her uh, in her current mindset. And honestly, I'm bad at that kind of thing. I, it's not the kind, it's not the way I talk. It's not a kind of um, affection with which I'm familiar. And I think most genuine affection comes from a very uh, personal, private place. It's always about in-jokes, I think, right? You have an understanding with your partner. And so you say something that may not sound meaningful, but is meaningful to the two of you. You can't do that in two panels uh, between two people. So I went on the internet and I looked up, like, I don't think I looked up how to pick up women. I think I looked up like irresistible lines or the best thing your boyfriend ever said to you or things like that. Um, and this line, you're astoundingly gorgeous and that's the least interesting thing about you, is a variation on something that someone brought up on one of those forums or one of those threads. Um, I don't make anything up. I steal everything that's good. Um, all right. So Izzy goes off. She's going to go make lunch. And then she asks if he noticed this noise um, on the bottom of the page, uh, on the bottom of page five. And that is, as I said last time, in a comic book, every odd numbered page is meant to be a little bit of a cliffhanger uh, just to get you to turn the page, whether it's, you know, an unresolved idea or a question. And so Izzy asking the question, did you notice a noise while I was getting ready? We're going to get the answer to that on the next page. And Aaron's response is nothing, but we sort of spell out what it is she heard. Um, in looking at the script of this issue, uh, here on page six, uh, Izzy is making a chicken sandwich. And for some reason, it was very important to me that it be a chicken, sa a chicken salad <laughs> sandwich because I had an earlier draft where it was like cheese slices and jars of mustard and mayonnaise, which is all the whitest food I could think of, like the most 1950s uh, white people food. Um, and I'm not sure if I changed it before Mirka did the art or afterwards, but for some reason, it became very important to me that it become that it was chicken salad. And I think it was because I watched a movie in which that was sort of the uh, like the the symbol of control. I wish I could remember what it is. I probably shouldn't have brought it up at all. <laughs> um, in panel two, she talks about saying there's a mouse family in the walls. Again, it's speaking to her mindset in here. She says a mouse family, not a mouse. She's thinking of, again, this very um, typical American nuclear family sort of feeling. And, and so she attributes the noise to a mouse family. Um, and then condescendingly, uh, Aaron's response is, a mouse family, you're adorable. Uh, and he says, we just had exterminators out a few months ago. You remember whether or not that is true is up in the air. Um, in my mind, that is not true. Uh, they weren't even in this situation a few months ago. And so there's no way that that happened and that she would remember it. 
And she says, I guess I forgot about that. Um, I love the angle that Mirka drew on this third panel of her putting the toothpick with the heart on it in the sandwich. Uh, it is not what I had in the script. I don't remember what I had. Oh, I said she just sort of closes up the sandwich. Um, but I love that, like, Mirka's showing how much care Izzy puts into just making this sandwich. Um, and again, Aaron is so condescending in panel for you're a busy woman. You can't remember everything. That's what I'm here for. And then that line that I mentioned earlier, she says, I'm lucky to have you. And he says, you're lucky to be had. Um, and again, it's all very, it's very madman to me. Uh, she says she wants to take care of him. She wants to keep him off his feet, go relax. Uh, and then more of this gaslighting, he sees the chicken salad sandwich and it's not at all what he wants. Um, so that all stands for that. And I love uh, in panel three here on page seven um, that Marissa has sort of shrouded Aaron in darkness as he goes up the stairs because he's really being a sour son of a bitch. Um, and then panel four, which my looking at the script now, my direction was only close on the sandwiches on the tray. And to me, that is just the saddest panel coupled with the next one where she just so sadly says I can make something else. She's so hurt. She's so bewildered. Um, the gaslighting is working on her. It just strikes me as such a sad little scene. Uh, coming up on page eight, this was one we worked on a lot as well. Um, this whole scene at some point, um, especially after Mirka came on and said she likes to draw sexy ladies. Um, these are her words. Um, I realized that I had to address the issue of sex in this world. Um, and what did that mean? And I also had to write about, you know, this is a horror book. And I had to write about things that were scary to me. And to me, the, you know, being... The worst part about approaching sex as, like, a teenager is the humiliation that goes hand-in-hand hand with it. Uh, and that was the thing I wanted to try to capture in this. Um, I don't want to talk too much about where everyone, all the characters stand on uh, the issue of sex in this because I, it plays into the next issue. Um, but it's very much by design that you don't see these characters actually have sex. That was a line, as much as it does scare me, that I did not want to cross. Um, I, I'm not ever looking to redeem the architects, but making them not just mind-controlling monsters, but also rapists, seemed irredeemable. Um, you already want all the violence that's going to come at them to happen, um, and I felt like if they were rapists as well, then, you know, like literal rapists as well, then no amount of violence would be cathartic enough. Um, that's also a story I'm not really interested in telling. Uh, it's not, you know, I don't feel, and it's, it's, we had versions in earlier scripts, uh, not in this issue, but in later issues where we did address that and we had Izzy have a conversation about it um, once they figure out what they are. And after Molly and I talked about it quite a bit, we thought, like, there's just not room in this story to go deep enough on that topic. So we had to sort of keep it in a reasonable realm where we can justify the actions. So anyway, coming back to page eight here, um, we see that Izzy's a little bit afraid of her husband. Um, again, in a very 
1950s housewife kind of way. He's the boss. She wants him to be happy. So when she comes up here um, to his office to see if he's okay, she's a little bit fearful of what she'll find. And then when he says in panel three, come in, you see her face light up. And I love the way that Mirka drew that. Um, I think at this point, and I think it is clear here, Aaron knows that he has to flip her emotions again and get her back on his side so as not to drive her away too much emotionally. So he says, come here. He says, I'm a terrible husband. Um, The way this plays out to me feels like great drama. Um, Mirka really nailed this stuff. Um, Here on page nine, he says, I'm a trite, commonplace sinner. That has a direct line from Jane Eyre. Uh, Rochester says that to Jane. Um, And so a lot of the dialogue on these next two pages from Aaron are either direct lines or sort of rewrites of lines from Jane Eyre because I didn't want to do... I didn't want it to sound unnatural, which up until the lettering draft, which was mere weeks ago, uh, it did sound a little bit unnatural. It sounded too much, too literary, too much like it was from the novel. So I rewrote some of those to sound a little more like a a contemporary person saying them. Um, But this line, I hide from you my true nature because I know you'll find me lacking. Again, straight out of Jane Eyre. Um, And her response, it's just a chicken salad sandwich. She doesn't know that. She's dealing with the reality of her situation. Um, but again, his lines, I'm wretched, I fail you. Um, all straight Rochester lines. Um, this line, uh, uh, panel five, my heart is in your hands and yours in mine. Should either of us pull too hard, we'll both bleed inwardly. That's a rewrite of, or, or sort of a, a version, it's a cover version of a line from Jane Eyre in which he talks about a string being attached to both their hearts. Um, and bringing in the idea of bleeding to me made it appropriate for this book. And it's also sort of a horrific image that my heart is in your hands and yours in mine. That's gross, really. And the last line on this page, thank you for distracting me from the mire of myself. Again, that's straight up Jane Eyre shit. Um, But it's the way that he is manipulating her, right? He's bringing her back to him emotionally. And then it turns into a sex scene, kind of. Um, again, his lines are a lot of Jane Eyre stuff. Adam, every atom of your flesh as dear to me as mine, my treasure, my possession. Uh, I may have added possession there to hit it home a little bit. Um, but what we wind up with here is not so much a sex scene, but a scene that is around sex and is humiliating to both of them. Um, you're going to learn more in the next issue, the way that Aaron feels about Izzy. And rest assured that none of those feelings are about sex. They're all, well, I won't go into it. You'll learn it in issue three. Um, I tried to think of a humiliating sex scene and something that would sort of embarrass both of them. And the idea that he never penetrates her, uh, that she's basically uh, jerking him off while he hovers over her awkwardly. and then is he's humiliated about it and she's humiliated about it really did the trick for me. I will say this. It is based on a story that a female friend of mine told me. Uh, I will not tell you who it is, but uh, she was seeing this guy and a similar thing happened, including the line uh, where he says, I pulled out and she says, you were never in, 
which I found hilarious, but neither of them did at the time. She did subsequently, otherwise she wouldn't have told me about it. Um, so they come out of the scene and she feels like she did something wrong, right? Because of his behavior. He feels like disgust at the whole thing. Um, even though he sort of puts on this act of saying you're wonderful, I think you can tell by the way he looks in uh, panel five that he doesn't mean it. Um, a technical note on this, these panels were originally much more explicit. Um, and Molly told Mirka to go for it. And I think that was the right idea. Like we really wanted them to feel very stark and very naked, literally and figuratively. Uh, and then they had to go through the uh, editor process at DC because if this were just Vertigo, well, then they would make all the decisions. And it got signed off by, uh, on by Vertigo. But it had to go you know, to the, the top editors because they look at everything. And they said, this goes too far. This is too uh, explicit. And so what we wound up doing, and I think it was a very good fix – is just to sort of crop some of the panels or, or enlarge some of the panels, no pun intended, um, so that, you know, it's a little blown out. You see a little less than you would have otherwise. Um, I don't know if that's something allowed to, I'm allowed to talk about, but I just did. Um, page 12. The wallpaper in this scene knocks me out. Um, I love what... Uh, Mirka did here, and I love the way it's colored, and it's actually um, foreshadowing for stuff you're going to see in issues three and four. Uh, it's a little a little uh, setup for something that hopefully when people get the collected edition of this, they're going to see how it all ties together. But honestly, it was stuff that as I was writing, I didn't um, I didn't come up with. I didn't think of it until issue three and four when I needed to answer some questions. And I said, oh, we can go back and plant sort of a visual uh, foreshadowing to that in issue two, since issue two wasn't, wasn't drawn yet. Um, let's see. Uh, we get a bunch of dialogue, you know, just stuff. I, I had this line uh, on panel two. And when, when Aaron asks Izzy what, he's, what she's going to do all day, and she says, there's something you'd like to do, go for a walk or play a game of Scrabble. It's because those are literally the only things that I know that a couple does together. <laughs> my only experience is my own. All we do is go for walks and play Scrabble and eat things. Uh, but they already ate something in this. Um, and here we're start they start to talk about some of the other characters. So we can have a, I can sort of ease you into introducing those uh, characters when they show up. Um, we get some very small controlling stuff of Aaron saying that non-sex that we just had was wonderful. You're, you're a real darling. Um, I have to go. I'm going away. No, you can't come with me. Uh, and then he says it, he turns it uh, in, in panel four. I wouldn't want anything to happen to you out there um, as if he's protecting her from something. Uh, he tells her as he happily goes out the door, try to have fun this afternoon. I love uh, the way that Mirka drew her looking out the window uh, at the fires she sort of hesitantly says, I will. We know she's not going to have any fun. Uh, and then we get her over to Nadia's, and it was important to me in this issue, as I talked about earlier, to start to bring them together. So we're on page 13, and we get Izzy walking across the street. We see the fires in the distance. And I love that uh, both Mirka and Marissa are keeping an eye on that and always having those fires very present 
um, because that's how they have to feel to the wives as well, the hex wives, the titular hex wives. Um, I do like, uh, of course, Nadia is baking a cake. As I mentioned last issue, uh, she's based on Nadia Hussein from uh, Great British Bake Off, so she will be baking a lot. Um, <laughs> that She has the words, cook with hearts on her apron, was Mirka's idea, and it really made me laugh. Um, and I do love that you can see Izzy kind of going from sad and sort of confused and withdrawn as she was in the past couple pages. And then when she sees Nadia and says her name here on panel three of page 13, she sort of lights up. Um, and I want to just start hinting that these two have a chemistry. These two have something, which is, again, why Nadia jokingly says, I felt your presence. I am psychic. Um, but, you know, is she psychic? She's joking about it, but they do have superpowers. Um, I'm on page 14 now. My direction on this page for panel one was, uh, this kitchen is filled with cakes. It looks like she's been baking for days. Some are cooling on wire racks. Some are being frosted. There's a large stand mixer on the counter with frosting cake to the paddle. There are bags of flour, sugar, etc. Um, and then a big oscillating fan to... Uh, cool everything off. This fan should be there very conspicuously because uh, we're setting stuff up. Um, what we were setting up with that fan, we wound up taking out. So it's like a weird vestige that has remained um, the next couple pages. Uh, but I'll talk about that in a second. So Nadia says she likes to keep busy. She's making cakes. And she still feels like something isn't right. She says in in panel two, I still haven't gotten these right. I keep trying, but something is off. And obviously that speaks to her bigger situation. They have, she has this feeling that something is wrong, but she doesn't know where to put that feeling, so she's applying it to her baking. Izzy, who doesn't have that yet, she's still bought in. She's so brainwashed that she just says, no, no, your cakes are delicious. Um, they talk at the bottom of the page about how they don't reveal everything to their husbands, but then... The kinds of things that they don't reveal are so innocuous. There are things like they, we don't let them see them without our makeup or uh, we don't, you know, Bradley doesn't know how many cigarettes Mabel has every day. Little secrets that she says are the recipe for a happy marriage. Um, again, they think that these little things are very important to them, but they don't realize that they have much bigger secrets to uncover, secrets even from themselves. Uh, just one last note. Uh, the last panel on here, uh, panel five, Izzy says she has a case of the weirds, to which Nadia responds, you have a terminal case of the weirds. That, again, is from stolen right from my wife, who <laughs> will often get a case of the weirds. I don't know where the phrase came from, but it cracked us up when one of us hit on it. In a terminal case of the weirds, there's just no escape. Um, page 15 uh, I really love how this plays out. Uh, so we wanted to have the risk of bloodshed, right? And so, you know, we established in the first issue that if the witches draw blood, then they get some of their magic. Um, so we wanted to keep that threat alive in this second issue where Nadia sees a spider and she's about to kill it, but her husband rushes in to stop her from killing it. Because if she were to do it, she would draw blood and probably get some of her power. Um, her husband is named Eric, which was one of the whitest names I could think of. I tried to find 
the whitest names for all these guys. Uh, Eric was one. And <laughs> Eric, the design is meant to be uh, based on Rich Summer from Mad Men, <laughs> uh, who I think is a l- lovely and funny and talented guy. And again, if we ever make this TV show, I think he would be the best guy to play this. I love the idea of him wearing uh, these um, uh, wearing these uh, like like sweatsuits, uh, like the matching top and bottom. It cracked me up so much. Uh, and the way that he just barges in yelling, wait, 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 and then trying to make it seem so innocent uh, with this sort of old timey language, the gaze upon the personage of your demise, you evil thing, as he slams the rolling pin down on the spider uh, really makes me laugh. You know, he's he's acting very gallant. Also, in that weird, creepy way that, like, some dudes do. Like, fellas, when you meet someone, don't call them, like, good sir and things like that. That's weird. Nobody likes that. We all think it's strange behavior. Um, but that's the kind of guy that Eric is. And I always hear Rich Summer's voice when I write him. Um, and then including like he bows to Nadia and Izzy as he leaves and they call him a hero. This is on page 16 now. Uh, and then the last panel here is sort of setting up the, it sort of hits home the theme for this issue. Um, Izzy says they keep us on our toes to which Nadia replies, they keep us off balance. Um, and that is absolutely what they're doing, right? They, their emotions are fickle. Uh, they're they're giving and withholding love and affection. They're at times angry. They're at times, you know, annoyed, whatever it is, um, all within the framework of these sham marriages. Uh, but their true goal is to keep the women uh, off balance. Uh, there's a little clink in the last panel here, which is an homage for all my thrilling adventure friends. Um, and then page 17 uh, we get to see, I wanted to see more of the neighborhood and introduce you to the other um, women in the coven or reintroduce you to them and see the way that their husbands are doing the same thing, um, trying to keep them off balance, trying to control them. Uh, Ryan, uh, who is Becky's husband, telling her that she looks great and that he also booked a uh, waxing appointment for her and makes very clear that it's a mobile waxing. They'll come to the house and take care of it so she doesn't have to leave the neighborhood um, and he'll take care of everything. She doesn't have to worry about a thing. And then we see uh, June and her husband uh, playing cards with Mabel and uh, June's husband is very condescending um, you know, calls them girls, tell them to play nice. Um, Bradley, so the design of Bradley isn't exactly as I wanted. I really like what Mirka did with him. But to me, he was always played by Bradley Whitford. And that's whose voice I hear when I write him. And it's become, he's become a really fun character to write. Um, And here we have Bradley fighting with Domina, who is supposedly his daughter, um, again, we went through a bunch of versions of this coming up with the little ways that the men are controlling the women. And for this, you know, because she's a teenager and she sort of intrinsically doesn't have control, right? She's living in her parents' house or what she thinks is her parents' house. Um, we thought that, you know, just having Bradley say, knock it off and just not give her a conversation, just sort of blow her off was the best way to show that. Um, 
Damina does have the line at the bottom of 17 here, the last panel on the page, I wish you weren't even my father. Of course, he probably isn't. Um, so, and then uh, I will also add, like, there's the phone call going on between Nadia and Izzy that sort of runs through this as narration. That was added later just to sort of clarify things and make that scene flow a little better. It was originally a two-page spread. Um, what wound up happening was... Uh, I had one more witch in here. I had another character, and um, we wound up, when I got to issue three, we decided to cut her out because it just was getting too busy in all the crowd scenes. So um, the two-page spread became a one-pager because we took out her parts, and then we sort of had to rejigger things a little bit. Um, I'll also say uh, in Damina's room uh, here on 17 in panels... uh, six and seven, I had extensive references for what her room should look like, and really none of it is in there. But uh, I wanted to make sure that we were situated in the present, even though it looks like 1960. Um, So I suggested posters for video games like The Last of Us and Mass Effect, music posters from SZA, Charlie XCX, and The Undertones. Um, I I don't know why those were important to me. Uh, this was written in March. That I do not give a shit anymore. Uh, I will say that Damina has a couple of cats in this, and originally she just had Margot, uh, her fat cat, sitting there, and we had um, Mirka add a couple of cats, one of whom is named Podgy. You'll be seeing more of Podgy soon. Uh, and, of course, Margot shows up again on the next page, uh, page 18, uh, and again, we're we're sort of playing with subtext here, and and I hope it doesn't come across as just boring dialogue because uh, I there was I remember listening to a commentary track for uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Is that what it's called? Um, and Edgar Wright's movies are so loaded with stuff that his commentary tracks are a lot of fun because he unpacks a lot of that stuff. And I remember him saying that. Almost all the dialogue in that, especially from certain characters, um, can be read either as actual dialogue or as video game references. You know, like Game Over is sort of the the easy version of that, like someone just says that to someone else. Um, but they talk about, you know, extra lives and stuff like that. And I really like that idea that all of the dialogue could have this sort of secret messaging behind it. So... Here on page 18 in panel one, when Nadia says, we all stick together, you know that, you're never alone, that's really about their coven. And in issue one, uh, Aaron literally points out that the coven is stronger together, which may also be a little on the nose, a little familiar, but I think, um, you know, we were all, we were all upset in 2016. Um so Nadia's on the phone and the cat is getting in her way. And this is just sort of a scene that was originally going to set up something that happened later in the issue, but now sets up something that happens in issue three. So I don't want to talk about it. But what we do lay in here that pays off in this issue is in panel four, um, Nadia says, how do they get in here? Talking about the cats. Uh, These houses have secret passageways. I swear it. And of course, she doesn't know that. That is, in fact, the truth, which we discover at the end of the issue. Um, Page 19. uh, This is more Jane Eyre stuff from Aaron. Uh, He calls them birds. 
which is sort of setting up a line later on. It's also a sort of callback to the chicken sandwich. Um, she says she didn't hear him come in. Again, it's setting up later stuff. It's setting up the idea that the men are sort of always around and but maybe not always on screen. Um, he does some more gaslighting by saying, "I we had fun since you asked. She didn't ask. Um, and he was really pointing that out. And then panel three uh, was originally something else. Um, I don't think it was a turkey. I think it was a chicken or duck. Or, oh, we, it was a duck um, because she refers to it as her preferred bird, which is what my wife says. We have never made duck, but when we go out, she will order duck because it is her preferred bird. <laughs> um, so I originally had a duck. And ducks are very small. Uh, they're small fowl. And when we got the art from Mirka, it was this enormous <laughs> turkey, like she had made Thanksgiving dinner. Um, and so we changed it to turkey. And it, I thought the it looked so funny that we had to keep it because it seemed just so over the top. And it felt like, oh, this is Izzy, like, overcompensating for how bad she felt earlier. Um, and then Aaron makes the joke, which is not really a joke about couldn't I just have a chicken sandwich. He's being an asshole. Right. He's pointing out the thing that made her feel bad earlier. Um, but she playfully says bad husband. Not so funny. He, of course, is a bad husband uh, in that he is a bad guy. Uh, and then this last line, which I love the way it's colored. Like he looks it's it's so foreboding. It's so evil when he says, what did I do to deserve such fortune? Uh, that's straight out of Rochester's mouth. Um but I love the way that Marissa colored it to really give this air of menace to him. Um, page 20, we start up with the scratching in the in the room again. And, you know, Izzy brings it up, the mouse family. Um, you know, we get more dialogue from Aaron. One of us needs to bear the palm. Again, that's straight from Jane Eyre, um, why he can't be with her tomorrow. Um, you'll notice the body language that they have here. They're a little stiff around each other. That's absolutely by design. Um, we see a little bit, just a hint in panel two of Izzy's bloodlust, in which she calls the mouse family, though that's an adorable way to put it. Uh, she has, says, I have absolutely no problem destroying, destroying those vermin. Um, so we see that, you know, she has a bit of an edge to her even here. And we're going to see that more and more. Aaron's response is that he's, she's a curious sort of bird again, continuing the bird motif in this issue, but also that is a straight up Rochester line, uh, to which she responds the same plain kind of bird as all the rest. And that is literally, uh, Jane Eyre says that about herself, thinking herself very plain. Um, and then Aaron's final line here, which, uh, is so dark. Uh, but is again from Jane Eyre, but but sort of recontextualized. They'll be taken out and disemboweled on the morrow, my love. Um, I decided to keep that in uh, straight from Jane Eyre because it is such a dark and bloody line and it fits in with this horror comic. Uh, pages 21 and 22. Uh, let's look at 21. Uh, first of all, I love the way that nighttime is colored here. Uh, I love the sort of flat coloring of it that you're still in the same world, but something feels ominous about it. Uh, we get this scratching. We get Aaron, uh, I think, in this first panel. It's very important to notice that he is taking up most of the bed. He is fast asleep. He's totally clueless. He is very much uh, a man. Um, we get Izzy 
going downstairs to the source of the scratching. She still thinks it's mice. I hated putting this bit of exposition is where she's sort of talking to no one saying, um, if you've had tiny mice babies in my crawl spaces, I just don't know. Um, it feels so unnatural to me, but I felt like it had to be established there and hopefully it doesn't stick out too much. She goes over to this armoire, this, this, uh, sort of shelf unit in their house, uh, where we once, once again, see that lamp that made her woozy last time. Uh, and she looks around this thing hearing, uh, we get the origin of that vase, by the way, not lamp, that vase, um, which is, it's something they bought on their honeymoon. Did they have a honeymoon? That's a question for another time. Um, she isolates the source of the scratching and Nadia's words about secret passageways come back to her. Again, that's exposition. I didn't love to put in, but I felt like we needed that in there uh, to sort of set up what we're about to get with the page turn when she goes, she realizes that, the, that there's a door, uh, there's a room behind this bureau um, and it is housing what uh, is appears to be an old woman, mostly naked, tied to a wheelchair uh, with tubes coming in and out of her. And uh, the way I described this to Mirka in the script was splash page. Izzy in the doorway of the secret room, having pried it open. We're behind her, taking in her full body as well as the expanse of the small room in front of her. Her body language registers complete surprise. Legs braced, hands out from just from her sides, fingers splayed. Headcock taking in what's before her, which is a character you will come to know as the Witch Mother. An old woman, shriveled, sitting in an old-fashioned wheelchair. She's barely propped up in it. Sliding out, she's stripped naked except for a diaper. A pile of quilts is on the ground by her feet. I guess the pile of quilts is not there. Uh, she's strapped in with enormous leather belts. She's attached to a series of drips and catheters, some of which are red with blood like tentacles coming off of her as well as a medieval-looking machine that's pumping blood back into her. Basically, she's being bled and replenished with her own blood in a constant cycle. With her claw-like toenail, she's scraping the cement floor. That's where the scratching sound had come from. Uh, and she says Izzy's name as she comes in. Um, the room behind a bureau is, of course, a straight-off rip-off of Rosemary's Baby. Um, I watched that movie three or four times before writing these first couple issues. Uh, and it was a thing that I really, like it was, it was part of the mythos of this book from the very beginning. Uh, there was stuff I knew that was going to be part of it. One was the nine panel grid. Another was that there was a hidden room behind a bureau. Um, and that was sort of a Rosemary's baby homage uh, and that there would be something back there that would raise more questions as well as provide some kind of answers for both the reader and for Isadora. Um, and I felt like that was a great place to get to in this issue. That was a really good cliffhanger. Um, issue three is really good, you guys. Uh, I've, I've just seen the completed uh, PDF of it, and it looks amazing. We really move the story forward in interesting ways, I think. Um, issue three is out on January 2nd. Um, because of the holidays, we pushed it a little bit, so it'll be out on January 2nd. And then issue four is out on January 30th, uh, or end of January. I believe it's the 30th. But you'll get two issues in January. 
and we will uh, do a couple more commentary tracks for those. But listen, uh, I love doing this book. Uh, I hope you enjoyed issue two. I hope you enjoyed this commentary track for it. As I said, if there are writers you want to hear from, artists you want to hear from, let me know who they are. Find me on Twitter at Ben Blacker and, um, and, and tag them in and maybe we can get them interested in this because, you know, I would love to hear it. Uh, I would love to hear some of the writers I love talking about the books that they are passionate about writing. Uh, we've got a few lined up for January. Uh, some of my Vertigo cohorts, uh, Brian Hill and Zoe Quinn, uh, whose books Goddess Mode and uh, American Carnage, irrespectively, you should check out, uh, both of which um, Goddess Mode is out in December. American Carnage is out right now. Um, I think that's it. Happy holidays. Forever. Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.